0: Hello, and welcome to Season 4 of the Prima Donna Podcast. I'm Nat Grant, a composer and sound artist from Melbourne, Australia, and what follows are sonic portraits of three incredible Australian artists, their voices mixed with my music. This podcast was produced on the stolen lands of the people of the Kulin Nations, and I pay my respects to Elders past and present. The first portrait in this season is of Sue Natras, first female lighting designer in Australia, stage manager, Operations Manager at the Victorian Arts Centre, Artistic Director of the Melbourne and Adelaide's Arts Festivals and more. She's won so many awards for her contribution to the arts in Australia that she now has several named after her. Here, she gives a brief overview of some of the many positions she's held over the years, the sexism she's faced and the fascinating changes in technology she's witnessed for sound and lighting over the last 50 years. Let's just go and maybe if we have a break, a little break at some point I'll have a listen. And, but the level looks good. Good. Yeah, you were telling me about an opening night of Chicago last week? Yes, that was the lighting
1: lighting board that had a thought that they'd never seen anywhere in the world. Um, it took them ages to find out what was wrong. They didn't believe it, the manufacturers for a while.
0: And so the lighting just stopped working? And just
1: finished it off with a couple of follow spots. What year was that? Chicago. Well, it was after I joined the Arts Centre. I guess it was the early 80s. Yep.
0: Probably. So you kept lighting shows after you became operations yeah. manager at the Arts
1: Centre? Yeah, each time. And I'm, I'm actually, I was. Arts Centre too when I was asked to do the Expo which was 88 in Brisbane there was an exhibition from the Vatican did I tell you about that? No it's a good one because I went to the Vatican and walked around backstage at the Vatican it was fantastic in Rome Mm. first class ticket because the government were buying the tickets and they couldn't find any cheaper than the first class (laughs) I didn't care as you can imagine yeah you deserve it I'm not telling you any more. That's fine. At this point. But it was amazing. The sense of history was extraordinary. Mm. I like how you said backstage. Yeah. At the Vatican. Particularly backstage in the Sistine Chapel. Mm. Where all the clothes of every Pope are still hanging. So you could look through centuries of frocks, as I call them, and hand-worked slippers. I mean, the nuns that went blind over their raiment must have been numerous because they were all heavily embroidered.
0: Did you grow up in Melbourne?
1: I didn't grow up in Melbourne. I grew up in the... An agricultural college called Longerong, which is eight miles out of Horsham, in northwestern Victoria, um, a fantastic place to have a childhood. We were able to join in everything that the students, who were you know early university age, and we could hang on to the back of practical things that they were doing if we wanted to. So we learnt a lot of skills watching. But we moved from there in 1956 to Melbourne. because Dad had been promoted to the Head of Agricultural Education and was based in Melbourne. And I was able to come out of boarding school, become a day pupil, and likewise came. Um, which was, was better, I think. It was an amazing year, 1956. A big year in Melbourne. Yes we were very lucky that our father was sports mad and he bought the tickets for all of us two and a half years before the game started and the opening night of the athletics was great There was an Australian called Chilla Porter who was down to the last two of the high jumps I think it was a Russian the other one I can't quite remember um but i do remember that we were sitting on one side of the mcg my brother and my sister and myself and mum and dad were on the other so that's how the tickets came and we'd agreed to meet back at the car when this high jump went on and on and on and we were sitting there saying mum and dad won't have moved they'll be watching it <laughs> and they were sitting on the other side saying oh the kids will be wanting to watch this they won't have moved so we'll wait till it finishes and to get it finished were no lights at the MCG in those days and it got into the pitch dark time Oh wow! and they brought out a couple of utes and turned their headlights on.
0: Is that how you became interested in lighting
1: design? <laughs> <laughs> no, I was only 14 at the time, 15. So lighting design hadn't crossed my mind yep. as it didn't exist as a, as a job anyway. Were you in fact the first
0: Lighting designer, first female lighting designer yeah. in Australia.
1: Yeah. Both. I no, I wouldn't have been the first. First female, first uh, woman.
0: First woman. Yeah. I'm
1: not sure about the other, but I'm sure about. Yeah.
0: yeah. And how did that come about? Because you studied commerce <laughs> at Melbourne Uni. Well, I didn't really study <laughs> no. commerce. Commerce. No, that's you, what you I was enrolled, enrolled
1: in <laughs> commerce. Um, but, but you're really involved in the theatre there. In right? The student theatre. Yeah, and that's where I learnt a lot about everything because the two people that ran it um, ran the theatre and, and the technician who was running the backstage, made, making sure the students didn't kill themselves or anybody else. Yes. The first time I went into the Union Theatre was to act and I realised I was never going to be a great actress couple of good notices but no I was never going to be a great actress and I was really interested in, in the technical end of it, just how things happened and so I sent uh, I, st- I st- said that to somebody from one of the dramatic societies and they said, oh that's good we haven't got a stage manager, we- you can do the next show, I said oh alright not really knowing what a stage manager did because we didn't, a couple of shows that I did at school we didn't go as far as having stage managers no. and things and you end up creating the jobs. Yeah. And that's what happened for me really. Um, and the lighting design came out of having worked the lighting board at the Union Theatre at the University and uh, all sorts of things. But I'd learned about putting on a show really. Yeah. Not much about sound because sound effects weren't used uh, until later on. Then I did a huge sound thing for the Melbourne Theatre Company's production of Ross, which was a play about Lawrence of Arabia. Um, it was directed by a guy called Raymond Westwell, who was a well-known English actor-director. His wife was quite famous, Joan—I can't remember her other name—and he wanted this really complex sound, making things happen. I mean. A change in pitch on a drum would then be a a change of mood and I'd do a lighting cue there as well and the sound cues. And it was mixing three tape recorders. And I mean, they were all old reel-to-reel, of course. But making the, the, the tapes was some of the really interesting things too because the guy who was designing the sound, if you like realised he had, it happened twice. realised that he had too much work and he was trying to pass a course and I wasn't bothering about that. And I remember taking a whole bunch of stuff home one night and I found that I'd cut off one note of something. And I spent about four because hours. That's physically and, cut off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, it is physically cut off. And so about four o'clock in the morning after having searched through and through and through these tiny bits of tape on our dining room table, I found the right one and I was able to put it in. There was one other time I had to suddenly do something, which was Barry Humphrey's first one-man show, which was held at the Assembly Hall in Collins Street, and the same guy who that was helping up with the sound was actually looking after the lighting for a commercial producer. And uh, he suddenly realised he had an exam on the opening night. Oh. He was a bit vague. He sounds bill. super reliable. <laughs> he said, very vague. Very good at what he did, but very vague. Um, so he said, oh, he told the, the producer and he said, well, you know, what am I going to do? He said, it's all right. Um, I've got a girl, she'll do it. He said, A girl? And he said, "Yeah, it'll that'll, that'll be fine." And he said, "Okay." So I went in to do the dress rehearsal in the afternoon, and then to do the opening night. The only people in the auditorium through the dress rehearsal were his wife, Barry's wife, and me. And I thought the show was fantastic, and it was. But afterwards, Barry came sort of running out to his wife in the front row, saying, I can't go on. He said, it's not funny. Nobody's going to laugh. It's not funny. And he was really distressed. And that didn't ever go away from him, really, that not believing that he was funny. He struggled just about every time he went on stage for years. after I'd done things like The Sun for Henry the Fourth. I, um, I did the MTC started to use me and I kept, became fairly full time with them, but mostly on tours. Now I have some very funny tours. The first one was with two plays, Arms and the Man and The No Hopeless. The No Hopers was an Australian play. We'd do the Arms and the Man for the kids in school. And they came because they had to. And we did the No Hopers at night. And I was playing a part in one of them, stage, stage managing both, doing the wardrobe. I had an electrician who was Greek. And he'd never been in a theater and never worked aboard he did and I went out to look at the scenery and there was another person there who I found out was going to be the the mechanism to put it up and it turned out he'd just come out of jail and he he said well how do I make these things stand up he knew nothing so it was a good way to (laughs) begin my first touring job and then the second one so that had a fairly big cast including Sheila Florence who became such a legend later on and she taught me to make sure that everything was scrupulously clean for the actors, you know, the proper washing of the glasses, because it was set in a pub. So it had to all be very schmick and that was a good lesson to learn. I was naive and young and stupid I think. I was 21 when I did the Barry Humphries show. That's incredible. So I'd been 22 or 23, I suppose, when I did that. Yeah. And that, the second tour was hysterical. Didn't have any of those people there anyway. There was only two actors. One of them was John Sumner's wife. I think he was a bit glad that she was out of town, really. You um, liked a bit of a womaniser, John. Um, and there was another. David who was notoriously difficult but he actually wasn't too bad but so I was the stage manager I was the lighting designer I was the everything I was the lighting board operator I was the first woman board operator license wow. at that time in Victoria actually on the first tour the guy who drove the, the truck was also the mechanist Bartram guy who was been in jail but unfortunately he dropped the semi-trailer on his <laughs> on his arm dropped the back end on his arm as he was trying to put it onto the prime mover so he was no help at all poor soul, he could drive and he did manage to drive but he couldn't do much else So that a different time in terms of
0: occupational health oh, and safety? There wasn't any Yeah,
1: there wasn't any
0: But did you say you had to get a licence to operate the board? Yeah. I didn't know that that was a thing.
1: Um, I don't think it is anymore. I don't know. But in those days, you know, lighting was was new anyway. (laughs) It was all so new to everybody. The department of whatever department it was had to be informed and give me permission to give me permission. So I had to go in and meet this bloke. And so he asked me a couple of questions and I got most of them, right, I got one wrong, but they said, no, that'll be fine. So sometimes when I was hooking the lighting board up to the power supply of the, of the town hall or whatever we were in, it kept blowing fuses, so what I would do would be get a bit of old fencing wire or anything else and put that into the fuse. Now, why I didn't start a fire, I'll never know, but the, light, the shows went on. And how to hang lights when they never hung lights out front of the house. And so I'd do them off window knobs and all sorts of things. And it was a good learning curve. And so did you see
0: the technology change a lot over the time that you were doing oh, that job?
1: Unbelievably. I mean, the lighting area moved very quickly, but then so did the staging area. But um, I've I'd worked on bigger boards than that in the, in the, um, in the Union Theatre, but that was still old technology and I mean the board was as big as the wall of this house, and you had to scoot along it and reach up and put, move things with your nose and with your <laughs> elbows and hands and legs, and, extraordinary to try and bring up a number of lights, you couldn't always get them onto masters. So that was all interesting, but then now, of course, they're about the size of a computer. And the f- the first computerized board, I got it. It had been ordered for the art center, which was still being built. And so they s- said, "Well, why don't you take it Sue Because I needed it. It was for a chorus line, and. Uh, could never have done that show without a computer board the woman lighting designer in America Theron Musser was a genius with lighting and she went and told the company to start to, to research and build something that she could do these things with so that's how it happened um, and I'd say that was a very different lighting thing in fact the stage manager about to be stage manager in Australia of that show, um, A Chorus Line both she and I went to America to see their first road show that being set up in Boston and that was fascinating watching that, the woman was extraordinary, she knew exactly what was happening and you know, as you, as you do when you're doing a lighting, but she, it was a much bigger plot than one any I'd ever worked on before. With that one you had to use her lighting plot that was contractual, sometimes it wasn't contractual and you could do your own it was the same with the scenery actually too, but, but that normally had to look like did on Broadway, yeah. which had its own drawbacks because at times we improved on it. In <laughs> fact, like Michael Bennett, who, who um, devised and directed a chorus line, um, rang me from New York one day and he said, because he'd seen the show in Australia, and he said, How did you do that t- turning of the mirrors so well and so join them up much closer than, than they did? And I said, well, it was a very simple old method. I said, I'd, I showed the problem to our head technician, who was a marvelous guy called Johnny Machetti, who never would put himself forward to say, but if you asked him, he could always find a solution. Whether he we were on tour or not, and if he were on tour, he'd go to his bag and get out a piece of something that he'd made and, and to fix it. it just, he knew the problems that were coming, always. Anyhow, um, so it was really just a, a very simple thing called a rack and pinion um, that worked the cogs that um, turned the wheels that made the things turn round. That probably won't make any sense to anyone unless they've seen a chorus line, so let's hope everyone who's listening to this has seen it. so scenery changed very quickly too and particularly interestingly a chorus line was one of those shows that if every department had to be at their best or it didn't work so the standard of low spot work was beyond anything we'd we'd had here except maybe in the old variety shows where they just flew it winged it Um, but not as many cues It's had hundreds of cues and an amazing follow-spot plot. plot. When I got back to Australia, I thought, what are we going to do about follow-spots? Because I knew there were none around, really, that were that skilled. So I put an ad in the paper, people who were interested. And I got quite a lot of things and interviewed them and chose three people who'd never operated a follow spot and I put, there was a very smart young woman, I put her in charge as the head follow spot operator and they came in and watched rehearsals and followed the plot. This is just in the rehearsal room and then we got to the, the first technical rehearsal with the cast so that they could see what they were doing. And we went through it and they didn't make a mistake, they had to learn it because there was no way they could remember what was on because they didn't have time to yeah. look at and see so they and the following spot work was fantastic to the point that the director who came out from from America, he'd been a stage manager the original one. Um, he said to me afterwards, he said you know so Theron Musa had three people standing by in New York with their bags packed because she didn't believe you'd be able to get able to do this and he said it's actually better than New York and we well, quite often were able to progress things because we were not first in line we weren't producing the shows from scratch so um, we could improve on things I mean any that and he had two moving walkways across the front of the stage to were used for people moving in and out of scenes and some scenery and it was, they were set into the stage and I went to see them set up the road, road tour in the workshop when they were making this and I was asking questions sitting there with a the scrap of paper writing notes And and they gave me the odd tip, like shave the corner off the leading edge so that it can go easily past the whatever's, so you know. Um, so they gave me a few tips. But I'll, that's all we, I had to take back was what I'd seen and the odd note that I'd made. And that was the scenery everywhere. So, but there was a predecessor to me in that area. Betty Pounder, who was an extraordinary artist herself. But also an extraordinary choreographer, and when she, she was sent to to, w- to watch the shows in a, wherever they started, and she would have to know everything about the, the wardrobe, the, everything. She learned everything, and she'd she'd be, have about five days backstage in wherever it was to have a look at all of those, and she'd come back and she'd know exactly all the moves for the actors, everything. Because often the directors who came out were. Well, no, they are stage managers and there's better some better st- stage managers directing him to some that are not so good. I'd like to go back to the Tivoli now to the first day at the Tivoli when I'd been off with this job much to the surprise of. The management of the Tivoli. Um, I've never had a woman big big musical. What was the show? The Wizard of Oz. And a huge production. Still one of the biggest productions I've ever worked on. I think. About five weeks before it was opening, I think. Four weeks anyway. Not a Boxing Day. Um, And I remember walking in the stage door. I walked along the passage and came to this big room. I didn't know what it was. I was actually on stage, but the the fire curtain was in and it just looked like a big room and it was empty. Now, I'd never seen a theatre that didn't have scenery on the walls or something. Oh, funny. There was stuff hanging around, you know. It was kept very, very clean and very tidy. In fact, around the walls, the, the, the floor would be painted white for about, about three feet, because it would show up the dirt if they weren't washing it properly. So you know, It was a very schmick place actually, the Tivoli, although it was not in a heyday when I went there. It was starting to be hit by the lack of variety shows, because it was a variety house, known throughout the world as a great variety house. So here I am. I didn't know where I was. Then I suddenly realised, and I met the crew. There was about thirty-five of them. Were I mean, there any other women on the crew? No, no. Probably a dresser. That'd be all. Um, but no, none in the more technical areas. Um, none, none on props or on lighting or sound or anything. Um, there was about 35 of them, and they were average age, I'd say, 45. A lot of them were older. And here was this... This was the end of 63, this 22-year-old woman coming in. Girl, and I was a girl. They that must age. have felt terribly threatened by... You. Uh, yeah, I suppose they did. And in fact, I was employed as an assistant stage manager because there was a stage manager. He was an old straight man to a comic and he was dying of cancer. So he didn't do anything, obviously, so he just sat in a corner and I got the show on along with the staff. It was interesting their attitude to me. The first two weeks or so they spoke in rhyming slang all the time so that I couldn't understand them but I learned pretty quickly what was going on. Then once we opened um, we had three sets of flying gear to fly the witches on and uh, that was guys pulling ropes in the wings right watching the, the swing and tab tracks and and we were doing a 10 o'clock matinee a two o'clock matinee and we were doing a changeover for a show at night. So we were early in the morning to do the changeovers from the night show back into Wizard of Oz. And I was getting very concerned about the fact that there was a pub across the back lane and they used to go out for their first drinks about nine o'clock, a.m. And often, when we, by the time we were up to flying the people, they were pretty impaired, or <laughs> and you, you could see the effects of the drink. And so I was pretty terrified about it. And I was—I got to the stage where I was throwing up every, all the time, so I had a bucket in the prompt corner and threw up into it. Because you were anxious. Yes, that we could kill somebody, yeah. but nobody—there were no, there was no occupational health and safety. So eventually one bloke came up to me and he said, what's the matter with you, are you pregnant or something? Now in 1963, you didn't ask a single woman if she was pregnant because she shouldn't have been, you know. We weren't up to the flower power time yet. And I said, no, I'm not pregnant. He said, well, what's the matter? I said, well, you guys are drunk and you're pulling these ropes and I keep thinking you might kill someone off. So of course I'm very concerned about it. Oh, okay. He walked up to the back of the stage and called the rest of the staff up there, and they had a meeting about it. And they decided that it wasn't good, and that anyone seeing anyone going out the back door to go to the pub would get belted, belted up, the person would get belted up by the others. So it was pretty rough justice. And they were fine after that. We didn't kill anybody, although. Interestingly, on uh, New Year's Day, one of the flying things, which was, was actually in the tab track, fell out of the tab track. Down came Joan Harris as the good witch to the stage, and I happened to be understudying it, but I didn't, as well as the lion. I understudied.
0: <laughs> I'm noticing a pattern here. When I read that you were a sound designer and a stage man- a lighting designer and a stage manager, I didn't realise that it was always at the same time. It's and then, oh, and you're an understudy as well. And yeah,
1: understudy. understudy. Yeah. Oh, I went on once, it's an understudy, in, a bit later on, and I saw the guy who came out from England who was a marvellous actor, Robert. I saw him on an, on an old post-war film the other night. He used to get a lot of films and as the sort of, not the stars, but the next level down. He was a lovely man. Anyway. But that same sort of pattern of being accepted was, was followed again in Sydney the following year when we did Wizard of Oz for the Christmas holiday period and it sold out in both places. Um, and one day, and we again, we had to change over for another show at night. And we're talking a lot of scenery, you know, big moves. Um, and one one day I came in early and what well, the usual time and it was a very strange atmosphere in the theatre. And they had a, hadn't it had accepted me at first. They'd heard a bit about me from the gossip, phone, phone calls, I suppose. But they were, weren't accepting of me initially but then at this time when I came in there was as I said this awful atmosphere and I knew something was really wrong you know how you feel it in houses sometimes and I said to them what's going on guys And I said well we heard Bill sack you last night I said no you didn't he didn't sack me he said yes we heard him sack you I said no and he said so we've rigged a 56 pound counterweight in this thing to drop on him and kill him so that's how I'm going to, to manage. I remember I'm a year old or so, I must have been 23. To have to manage that group of men, of similar ages. Put away that harebrained idea without getting them really upset or whatever. It was very interesting, good management, people management thing. Interesting, working in a variety house. I didn't do very many variety shows the Tivoli two or three but they're very different people. Comics are notoriously pretty sad people. There's a ventriloquist who was a great ventriloquist talking through his doll you know and it turned out that he fancied me, and he was standing in the prompt corner and suddenly realised that a lot of this stuff was being directed to me. But he couldn't bear to speak to me himself. He had kind to do through it through the dog. doll. Okay. I mean, how that? <laughs> yeah, that? <well. laughs> Whatever turns you want, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> kind of um, sweet. Hmm? It's kind of sweet. Yes, it is kind of sweet. Kind of creepy. And, uh, <laughs> and Jimmy Edwards, who was a comic, Comic actor, I suppose, from England, very well known through radio shows that he did, like Take It From Here and others. That he was the, the top of the bill on the last night of the Tivoli when it had closed when it closed down, and uh, I um, it was the first show to be televised, live show to be televised. And so the um, the television guys came in and tried to take over, of course, as they still do, I think. Um, and I was getting fairly resentful about it because they said, you've got to do it to our timetable. I said, this is a theatre of some standing around the world. And, and I said, I'll, I'll be taking the curtain up at eight o'clock. And they said, well, if it's eight o'clock, that's fine. And so I thought, well, I'm going to celebrate the Tivoli. And so I I stage managed the show in a long, white evening frock with my mother's white fox fur and possibly a diamond necklace. I don't remember that part of it. But I got myself all doodled up. For the telly. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, I actually... I was able to make the cross with the curtain going up as the sweep second hand came under 8 o'clock. They didn't believe we could do any of those things, you know. They always doubted everything from the, from other departments. Yeah, that's a shame. Yeah, it is. Maybe they're better about it now. I've never noticed them taking over to the same extent since then. I mean, I'm talking 1963. It's a long time ago. But I have to say that the that one of the the great mentors for me was the the electrician in the Tivoli who had been a guy who was the eldest of his family and his father died when he was about 11 and then the the depression hit and he had to find food for the four or five siblings and and his mum Mm -hmm. and he used to go out and work if he could get work on the roads, put his age up on the building of the roads which was the the Great Ocean Road, which was the big project that Sidney Meyer funded during that time. Um, And he became, somehow he became a theatre electrician. And he was so good at what he did. He didn't have a ticket or anything, nothing to say, he studied, he probably studied anything. He obviously must have studied his own time, I think. but he was so good at what he did that the City Council electrical blokes often asked his opinion and asked him how to get them to help him. We had a substation in the theatre actually. And he used to talk about the theatre and he was just a really good man and he was great to have, for someone of my age to have, particularly when I was dealing with Some other men who were, one or two of them you couldn't put into the good basket. (laughs) Mostly they were, but there was the odd. The person from the ships, when they couldn't get a gig on a ship, they'd come come to the theatre because of the transferable skills of knots and ropes and, um, and some of them were a bit wild. But interesting it was very interesting time for me and I had to black out on a woman on stage once because she sat down and peed squatted down and peed in the middle of the stage leading lady it was good
0: intentionally
1: yeah okay but not part of the show no she's quite mad she was quite mad lots of things that to me were really quite extraordinary because I was very naive yeah, yeah I very looked, young yeah. yeah very naive too yeah anyway enough of those sorts of characters but they were good characters to to talk to and to get to know so okay. by the
0: time by the time you came to the art Centre what year was that?
1: The it was 83.
0: So it's a lot later. So,
1: you know, the TIV closed in 66. Okay. And so I didn't think I was going to get another job. I'd tried um, television and I went not hiring women in the Ticklingwood area at all. Um, and JC Williamson's had all their staff, you know, they're fully staffed, and so was Garnet Carroll at The Princess, so there didn't seem to be any jobs around. So. We were given two or three weeks' notice that we were closing down forever and that we'd have the money that we were owed, which was great. So I thought, oh, well, I won't starve to death. And so we had the big closing night party and I went home. I was living with my parents at that time, still. And Mum rang me on Monday. I'd I'd gone into the theatre to pack up my props and go. And she rang me on Monday and said, Williamson's are trying to get hold of you. I said, oh, really, what for? She said, I don't know, but you better ring. And I rang and Joe White, who was the person in charge of hiring stage management. He was an older technical person. He said, come in and see me. So I went down and walked in. And he said, "Uh, there's there's a job going. It's to be an ASM and understudy a Juve lead. And I laughed and I said, there's no way that I can do that. I look at me, you know, there was nothing to do with the jubilee to look at. And just at that moment as I was beginning to say that, his phone rang and I could hear the other bloke on the other end It was the managing director and he said, well, what's she, what's she like? And I said, tell him she's a big girl. <laughs> and he did. So that didn't happen. But then a bit later that same day, there was a, show, one of the comedy, which had Googie Withers in it and a really good Australian actor whose name escapes me. And one of the the guys in the play got appendicitis and so the stage manager was understudying him so he had to go on and then therefore there was nobody to stage manage and so they asked me if I'd do it. I said, yeah, Wendy, you want me to start? They said, tonight. Oh, I said, all right. So I went in was calling it blind, but there were not a lot of cues. It was not hard. It was a prompt copy It was in reasonable shape. And Ed Divero was the name of the bloke. He and Googie didn't always hit it off, so that was a good management thing. And so the husband at that stage was managing director. There was um, a bit of tension could be there sometimes. I loved her actually she was she was terrific she was very down to earth in many ways but she was a very fine actor too have you ever heard her i've heard the name i don't know will you with us she english had a big career in england and a big in the movies and then she married john mccallum who uh, was running williamson's at the time uh, she had three kids all of whom were in the business in some way they getting, I mean, the daughter's not much younger than me, in fact. I don't remember. cookies called me into a room someday and one day, and she said, how did you manage to keep standing up straight when you were so tall? Why aren't you bent over like most tall people? Were? And I was very tall. Especially
0: kid. young women, too.
1: Yeah, and she had a daughter who was growing up, and she's much taller than me. She would have been six feet, I would have been. And uh, I said, well, all I know, all I can remember is when we were walking down the street in Horsham on Fridays, which we used to do with Mum, doing weekly shopping. Um, people would stop her and say, that's uh, Sue, isn't she, isn't she tall? And Mum would say, yes, isn't it wonderful? And so that was what, all she had to do.